Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. And she'll be like, what are you feeling? Well, initially I'm like, what? You want me to, I mean, I could identify like, okay, I'm laughing. Like I'm amused. Like, right. Okay. I'm self-deprecating. Like, you know, but she'd be like, you know, I, I'd be like, I don't know. I, I am definitely, there's some feeling going on here. Or she'd say, where do you feel that in your body? I'm like, oh, body, I'm, I'm here. Like my consciousness is, you know, four feet behind my eyeballs. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you you, what makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul, they can connect us and they can change the world and so in this podcast I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story, what happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, my beautiful friends, welcome back. On the Heal blog this week, I'm sharing nine interesting facts about narcissistic personality disorder. NPD is such a difficult one to deal with and I am sharing some top shelf information from Nicole Bigelow, narcissistic abuse recovery coach. Go to the link in my show notes to read this blog. You know, every single day I hear new wisdom whether it comes to me from a reel on Instagram or through recording a podcast with another incredible human 
or maybe even something one of my kids shares with me. But one of my favorite things is hearing new wisdom or even hearing something that I already know reframed to give it another dimension. And this is how I felt in my chat with Dr. Constance Scharf. Did you catch my chat with Dr. Constance Scharf last week? Well, she and I spoke for so long when we connected that I decided we needed to put this chat out over two episodes. Last week, we heard Constance's story of sexual abuse as a child, which she has totally blocked from her memory, and how the impact of that resulted in her picking up her first drink at just 11 years of age. By the time she was in college, Constance was drinking two litres of hard liquor every day. That addiction remained for years and many friends could not see her surviving past her 20s. If you haven't listened to the first instalment of this chat, please go back and listen to part one. We pick this chat up again as we're talking about how loneliness and disconnect are such a huge part of our world today and how it's the human connection piece that is so important to a person's ability to recover from trauma and addiction. We live in a world now where it is it is like a mental health crisis, I think. You know, there's sure. so much, there's so many people struggling. The world has become a very lonely place, I think. You know, we, we're almost shutting ourselves off into our own little kind of universe. The Surgeon General just released a report about that a week or two ago Okay, about the crisis of loneliness in this country. Yeah. We're creating this lonely world and people are suffering so much. The thing that everybody needs is the connection. It's the love. You know, people are not going to be addicted to things when they have connection and love in their life or they have the opportunity for that. That's very true. So there were very famous rat studies that were done many, many, many years ago. So in the original rat studies, if you put a rat in a cage and you give it access to cocaine water or heroin water or whatever, the rat will drink the drug saturated water until it dies. So people said, oh, well, look, these drugs are strong. These drugs are bad, blah, 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 blah. Well, another researcher said, well, maybe that's not true. So he put a bunch of rats in a rat paradise. They had food. They had water. They had things to play with. They had other rats to play with. They could have anything they wanted. They also put, as part of it, drug water, whether it was cocaine, heroin, whatever. They put that in there also. The rats would taste it, but were not interested in it because they had other rats. So they're like, yeah, so if you put a rat in solitary confinement and give it as much drugs as it wants to take, but no other choices, yeah, it'll it'll use. Well, doesn't that sound like so many of our lives, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I'm not obviously not in solitary confinement, but one of the problems of trauma is it keeps me separate. Mm-hmm. Before I had good therapy for the trauma. I remember my God, seeing my God, my Godchildren live in Australia and seeing them. And I couldn't feel, I knew I loved them, but I couldn't feel it when they were in the room with me. But when they left the room, I was devastated because I was like, oh my God, I love you so much and you're not here. But when they were there, there was this barrier and I just couldn't connect. And by, for me, it was somatic experiencing by having good therapeutics because talk therapy doesn't generally work because I'm so dissociative, right? I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, you know, all the things and whatever, but I'm somewhere back here and there's no emotional connection. So I can tell you over and over and over and over again, it doesn't make, it doesn't do anything to me therapeutically because I can't connect to the emotion somatics works on you know van der Kolk's principle the, the, from the body keeps the score right that we have trauma trapped literally in our bodies and if we can express that then i can come into the present because trauma essentially is being trapped in the past the past keeps intruding in the present mm-hmm. and i'm not here with you dissociation is sort of the same in the sense of i'm here 
physically, but emotionally, you know, I'm not. And so once I could be in the present, well, then all those things changed, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, my godchildren are fantastic, you know, and irritating and funny and all the things, right? But I didn't experience that sort of as a memory later. I got to, I get to experience that when I'm with them. You know, we get to have a genuine relationship, which wasn't possible for me before. Just couldn't connect. What was the work that you did then, the somatic work to allow that to happen? So I personally do radical aliveness and, but it's all somatic experiencing is similar in, I mean, they have slight variations to them, but it's to get in touch with your body and get in touch with your feelings and to move anything that's trapped out. But for example, you know, we'll be doing something or talking about, she's like, whoa, 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 let's slow down here. And she'll be like, what are you feeling? Well, initially I'm like, what? You want me to, I mean, I could identify like, okay, I'm laughing. Like I'm amused, like, right. Okay. I'm self-deprecating. Like, you know, but she'd be like, you know, I'll be like, I don't know. I, I am definitely, there's some feeling going on here. Or she'd say, where do you feel that in your body? I'm like, oh, body, I'm I'm here. Like my consciousness is, you know, four feet behind my eyeballs. Like that's where I'm talking to you from. My body, you know, and early in this process, like I really could barely feel myself, you know, like this, like I can feel this, you know, but back then I'd be like, okay, like you're in here, you're in the meat suit, you know, but so that has happened. I also, she helped me to be able to move things through. So for example, she's in California and I flew down to see her and my flight was terribly delayed and I had booked a double session, but I was like, I'm going to miss two thirds of my session. And I'd been calling her from the flight or texting her and whatever. And I showed up I wasn't upset about being late. I mean, you're late in life and you miss appointments and there's disappointment. I mean, welcome to life, right? I walked through the door and I started sobbing, right? And she just put hugged me. And I mean, you know, snot in her sweater. Like I am sobbing. I don't know what had to move. I, I, you know, it wasn't associated with a specific memory, but there was something about you know, was it about abandonment? And she showed, you know, cause I'm like, I'm not going to get there in time. And she's like, I'm going to be here. Right. And then she was there. Right. I, I, who knows? That's a story I'm overlaying on that experience, but it was it really important. And then, so she helps me to move those things through. The other part of it is not somatic. You know, I'm a writer. That's what I, I love writing. I, you know, I don't care. You make your money off of it. You don't make, I write books and Thank God people read them. And if they don't, I would still write books because that's what I do. But one of the things I learned about writing is that whatever you tell yourself is true. And so if you change your story, you will change your life, right? It's sort of the premise of narrative therapy, right? But I remember I had always thought, I heard, I overheard my dad say, I don't want to have sex with fat women. Said it in a little more vulgar way than that. But I thought, well, that's good information. That's good information. So I start eating everything in sight. And I have in my mind this story that if I just become some sort of immovable mound of flesh, that I won't be assaulted. That's not true. Heavy people get assaulted. Skinny people get assaulted, you know. And because I had been groomed in a certain way, I was like a beacon for predators. I got approached by predators way more than any of my girlfriends ever, ever did until I did the somatic work. I got approached all the time. But I remember I was just starting with the the somatic work. And, you know, the story in my mind is, you know, I'm safer if I'm bigger. I'm safer if I'm bigger. And this friend of mine looked at me and he goes, that's not true. And I don't know why that day was different, but I heard it like here. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, because people said that to me a million times. 
I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's not true. Can I tell you I lost 70, 75 pounds and that was four years ago. And it, I, I did I do anything different with my eating? No. Did I do anything different with my exercise? No. Did it, nothing changed except that story. Wow. That story changed. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, and I see this all the time in my work. I hear people all the time tell me I can't get sober. I'm like, well, then you can't. I can't change. If, if you believe it's not possible, then I can't do anything to, to help you. Now, you know, there are things that my wishing doesn't change. You know, I always say, you know, I could, I could say, I'm going to be a, a gold medal Olympic gymnast. Well, I'm not, you know, because that doesn't just have to do with me, right? I got to beat out, you know, Simone Biles, who's way better <laughs> and younger and fitter and all the things, right? But could I, at 50 years old and, and my size, could I be a gymnast? You bet I could. You bet I could right? Could I do a pull-up? Well, not today, but is there anything, right, stopping me from training to that eventuality? Yeah, I could do a pull-up with the, with the proper training. I could run a marathon with the proper training, right? You know, and so, you know, there's nothing, you know, I still have that tenacity of, you know, I'm going to beat you. Like, daddy, you, you're not going to ruin this life. I'm going to beat you. So, you know, if I want to I'm very, for, I, I feel very fortunate, right? I don't live in Afghanistan, I'm not a woman in Afghanistan, right? Where I don't have a chance. But living where I live, I'm like, oh, I want to, I, I, I really want to go to Tuvalu, which is an island nation in the Pacific that is drowning, right? The Tuvaluans are all going to end up going to, to New Zealand. I want to go to Tuvalu and I want to research this and I want to learn more about it because I think they're fantastic and dealing with amazing things that are horrible. And I want to learn more. So I'll go to, you know, I'll go and you fly to Fiji first and I use my frequent flyer miles and fly to Fiji and then we'll figure it out and I'll meet the right people and I'll call the people at the university and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a PhD too and I'm interested in your work and will you talk to me? Someone will. There's no no for me, mm. right? That's what I'm saying. And so that's my narrative. That's my narrative. There's no no for me. There's so, will I get everything that I want in life? No, that's not how it works. But I can go way farther than I believe or you believe just on determination. Mm, yeah. Just on determination. And I think a lot of people don't have that right, though. That's where people fall down is believing. It, it's the stories that they tell themselves. What's the key to that? What's the key to people? being able to stop the stories? So I think, I think the first thing is, especially when you're dealing with addiction, is that the key to recovery or a key to recovery is don't do what you think it should be. So if you go to 12-step rooms, they're going to tell you to do certain things. If you go to a religious-based program, they're going to tell you to do certain things. If you go to rehab, you know, they're going to tell you to do certain things. And I think one of the disservices that we've gotten from rehab is that many rehabs say, just take what you want, cafeteria style. And I think that's a mistake because then what happens is we have selective hearing and we move back into, we use pick and choose the things and we say, oh, it doesn't work. Well, because you didn't do it the way they told you to do it, right? If you, right, if, if, if I would say to bake a cake, you know, and I say, okay, so first you take the, the ingredients and you mix them together and then you put them in the oven, right? If you just take all the ingredients and put them in the oven, you're not going to get a very good cake, right? You can't, there's times you can't skip certain pieces of the instructions and expect to get the results that you want. It's like if you've ever seen recipes for cookies, they're like, okay, this is if you use white sugar. This is if you use brown sugar. This is if you use all-purpose flour or more flour or less flour. You put molasses instead of sugar, like, and all the cookies, they're all chocolate chip cookies, right? But they're all a little different. And some of them aren't as delicious as others, right? And so I think what we have to do, in, and, and I do like this term in 
uh, 12 steps is this idea of surrender. You see it a lot in Buddhism as well, right? You know, you, things are the way they are. You know, you like the president, you don't like the president. You like the cor the king's coronation, you don't like it. It doesn't matter. The president is who the president is and the king had the coronation that he had. It doesn't matter what I think or feel about it, right? Hmm. And so there, if I can accept that my thought process is flawed and just do whatever, because I'm picking what I, wh who I like anyway, right? Do I want a medical, you know, program? Do I want a spiritual program? Do I want to, you know, whatever doesn't, that is irrelevant, but just do what someone else tells you in its entirety. So what really made the difference for me is I didn't tell my mentor, no, I can count on one finger once. I worked with her for 12 years, the first 12 years of my recovery I can of, of this sobriety. I can, I can tell you one time she said, I want you to pray on your knees. And I said, I'm Jewish and Jews just don't do that. I didn't say I wouldn't pray. I said, I'm really uncomfortable because that's what our literature said to do, that you should pray on your knees. And I said, I'll pray standing up, sitting down in some weird yoga position, totally prostrate. I don't care, but mm, knees doesn't feel good. And so she said to me, she said, go to the other Jewish people in our group and find out what they do. And so that's what I did. And half of them said, no, I pray the Jewish way, mostly standing. And, and I had one, one very dear man of blessed memory now, but he said to me, he said, oh no, sweetheart, when God sees a Jews on their knees, you on their knees he he knows it's they're really in trouble right and that worked for him that is the one thing that i that i ever now i would talk back and i'd be sassy and be like well, that's a ridiculous idea and then go do it you know like a petulant child i certainly you know behaved badly but i did what she said and that built trust right because mm -hmm. when i did what she suggested came out of this story of i know best yeah then my life got better and I was like, and my sobriety got easier and all those things. And I was like, all right, there's something to this. You know, I've worked with a woman who I just adored, you know, and she called me up one day and she said, I really, she'd been sober for five years. And I, she said, I really think I'm going to drink today. And she didn't live near me anymore. She had moved to San Francisco. And I said, get up right now and go to a 12 step meeting. I said, because if you're with other sober people, you're not going to pick up and this feeling is going to pass. And she listened to herself, not because I thought there's anything magical. It's just if you're, if you're with a bunch of people who aren't drinking, you're not going to order a drink. It's just, you know, this is how it works. And she decided that she was going to stay home and watch movies with her dog. And she, you know, ordered a handle of vodka and she's dead now. One year later, she's dead, you know, because she kept picking and choosing what she wanted to do. And that's the danger of the, of the narrative of the story in the alcoholic mind, because we think we're doing what's best, but what we're, but our thinking is distorted, right. you know? And so that's why at least, you know, I'm, I'm sober 25 years. Like my thought process is like, the average person, right? I make good decisions. I make bad decisions, but I don't make decisions that take me back to drinking anymore, mm. you know, because my thought process has changed. But initially, if I was left to my own devices, the answer was use yeah, because I knew it worked and I mm. didn't see the insidiousness. You know, I, I knew a guy who, oh, terrible, terrible heroin addiction. He's sober. I'm probably like close to 10 years now maybe 10 years, but terrible heroin addiction. And he would say, he went to detox and they said to him at the end of his seven days in detox, they said, you should go to a treatment facility. And he's like, why would I go to a treatment facility? I am sober and I don't want to use. And he was not lying. He was like, I'm sober and I don't want to use. And he's not an hour out the door, right? Maybe two and he's high again. And he was perplexed. He's like, what happened? That's our thinking. But when he's telling the people at the treatment facility that they're crazy, he's not lying. 
-hmm. right? You could have strapped them up to all the, you know, all the monitors you wanted and you'd get a truthful response. I'm not going to use. So that storytelling process is distorted in, in people who suffer from addiction. And that's why they can't get out of it very, or one of the reasons, many reasons why they can't get out of it with ease. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? To realize the power of our brains and our thinking and we're we're just not aware of of how destructive that is in inside of our own heads no you know that's that's incredible well also there especially you know with some alcoholics we're still okay in other areas of our life Mm. right so I walked across you know the stage and you know and and I got all the honors and all the things and and faculty scholar and I mean all all the all, all the designations and people are like well how did you do that if you're you know a drunk and I was like I don't know I mean I'm smart you know I, I don't know I pick classes that I'm good at I, I liked school like I don't have an answer but if you're if you have not gotten this is one of the fallacies of our thinking if you've not gotten to the level of homelessness, lost the family, you know, lost the job, lost all the things, then you can still tell the story. Well, it's not that big of a problem. Mm. Right. So like this woman, you know, when she, when she relapsed, she got very sick. She'd already had some medical problems. And she said, I think I need to go to the hospital. And I said, well, you need to go to rehab. And, and over the next six or eight weeks, she just couldn't, just couldn't stay sober and very, very difficult medical problems. And I, and she said to me, I said, you got to go to rehab and when we need a, a med, like a facility that has medical doctors on staff, I was like, you are physically sick. Like there's some physical problems here that we need to deal with. And she said, well, I'll lose my job. Mm. And I was like, oh baby, your job's gone. They haven't fired you yet. Right. But she's still telling herself, oh no, I can, you know, I can maneuver my way through. I'm like, no, no, you're going to go on disability and you're going to stay on disability as long as you possibly can to get the most treatment that you possibly can. And then as soon as you go back, they're going to lay you off because that's what happens. That's not, you know, it's not legal. It's not right. You can have whatever, you know. And she was like, no, I can't. But what actually happened, right, was she left treatment sooner than she should have. She stayed for, you know, a while, but she left treatment sooner than she should have. And as soon as she got back, they, her position is no longer needed. Right. I was like, that job's already gone. Right. But we can't see that because our story is, you know, it's like when people are like, oh, nobody knows how much I drink. And then, you know, right. And everybody's like, oh my God, we totally all know that you drink a lot and, you know, you have all these problems or, you know, a, a dear friend of mine, you know, he was in a, a major band and, and he talks about how his, his, the lead, he was a guitar player and the lead singer of the band. I write about this in, in one of my books. And the lead singer of the band came over to his house and threw a CD. This is a long time ago, threw a CD at him and said, this is a recording of the show that we just did. And my friend's like, oh yeah, here we go. Right in his mind, here we go. He's going to tell me what a you know POS I am. And he's going to tell me how bad I am. I'm not a good guitar player. And he did say, you know, he's like, I don't know what you were playing, but it wasn't the same song we were playing. Uh, you're just off in your own little world. But that's where he left it. And he said, it is not fair. They've been friends since kindergarten. It is not fair for you to make me watch my best friend die. This is a guy, they had to pull the van over on the side of the road because he's having a seizure and spitting up blood. Yeah. And he came to with, you know, the state, you know, police saying, do you know who you are? Do you know where you are? right? Because he couldn't, he couldn't drink enough to get him from point A to point B because the van didn't, you know, wasn't a bus, didn't have a toilet on it. They couldn't pull over all the time to pee. So he didn't drink and he had a seizure from, from alcohol detox. And he doesn't think, he doesn't think the problem's that bad. Right. Mm. And his friend's like, it's not fair for me to have to watch you die mm. and walked out. He never listened to that CD. But he went to rehab. The next call he made was to his mother who worked in, in, in medical, in the medical field and said, how do I, how do I get to rehab? Like, what's the, what's the process for that? So it's that, you know, because he messed up the story. See, if, if the singer, if the friend 
had said, you know, you're messing up the band. He'd be like, I ain't messing up the band. You just don't know how to sing or whatever the story was. Right. He didn't play into the story that the, that the man expected. He, he played it. He was like, I don't want to watch my best friend die. I'm not going to do it. Mm. Eye opening story. Absolutely. When Marcel, when Marcel said there's recovery, it scared me to death. Right. I want to jump out the car, but also I was like, Oh, wait a minute. That might be true. Yeah. Yeah. Might be true. Oof. Wow. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Do you have any simple practices that people can incorporate into their day to help if they're trying to heal their trauma? Yeah, so I so I wrote, I, I started the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research for two reasons. Number one, to give not an Indigenous person, but I believe that everyone should have a seat at the table, and you certainly do with me. But also because I traveled the world and I've seen how Western mental health we call them colonized practices really harm not only don't help but harm other communities. I work in the area of complementary. And so people talk about prayer and meditation and yoga are are all pretty common. Some things that are maybe less common. Acupuncture is one of my favorites. It is sometimes covered by insurance. I like it because it's passive. I show up, lie on the table, and they stick a few needles in me, and I feel better, a lot better. And it really, really helped me in my early recovery to just calm me down you know, so anxious. Things that work with your hands. So my anxiety was so bad. I do all the, by the way, I try all this stuff out on myself, right? And it doesn't mean not everything works for me, but I really am focused on things that activities that have few or no side effects, right? So for example, if you write a song, what you're not very good at the guitar, like there's no, you don't finish it. It's, you know, there's some sort of judgment, like self-judgment. No, there's no real side effect to the process, but there are really some good benefits. So that's, so I try all this stuff on myself. So if you have anxiety, which so many people do in early recovery, something with your hands, knitting, crocheting, needlepoint. I used to do for the first 10 years, of my recovery, I would go to these meetings and I would do fancy stitch needlepoint because I couldn't sit in my seat without losing my mind, without something for my hands to do. And I went to this really big meeting on Fridays. And I remember one day I had forgotten my needlepoint. I didn't put it in the car because I would go to work and then I would come to directly the thing. I didn't have it in my car. And I shared that sober like 10 years, you know, I shared, oh my gosh, I forgot my needlepoint and I'm okay. The cheers, you would have thought I said I, I had a week sober. I mean, the cheering that I was okay, but that repetitive, you know, really, really helped me initially. And I know it helps a lot of, you'll see a lot of people who knit or, or crochet or whatever. And it's, you know, not a bad activity to do. I think music, playing music or singing. And I want to be real careful that your brain does not know if you are good or bad at it. So think about if you see a child 
you know, in the cereal aisle at the grocery store who's listening to the 80s music that's usually, you know, going on, right? And they're dancing and doing their thing. They don't care. And nobody goes, ew, they're not a very good dancer. I don't know why they're not, you know, why they're dancing. Because the, they're three. Nobody cares, right? Your brain does not know if you're good or bad. It cares that you do it. So if you have your own carpool karaoke, right, and you are having a bad day and you're driving home, and you got some, you know, music on the radio that you really like and you belt it out, it's actually a neurological response. It's a neurochemical response. So your brain produces serotonin, oxytocin and dopamine. So if you're having a, if you're, you and I, right, I'm just going to assume that our brain chemistry is fairly normative, right, at this point. So if you and I are having a bad day and we're starting out here and we sing, we'll end up like this, right? You'll feel better. I do this all the time in academic conferences. I have people, we all sing row, row, row your boat. Most people who speak English could know row, row. I don't know why that's a cross-cultural song, but it seems to be. So, you know, we'll sing row, row, row your boat. I'm a Girl Scout. And so we'll do it in an eight-part round, right? I mean, I got the whole place going and they're all laughing. It's not because it's silly. It's because your brain produces these feel-good chemicals, right? Now, if you're, you know, in early recovery from addiction, and your brain is not producing these chemicals in anything like normal amounts, mostly because you have been, you know, self-medicating, right? It doesn't matter if you drink it or shoot it or snort it or smoke it or whatever, your body's waiting for you to put the chemicals in instead of producing themselves. So if you start singing and you're at the basement of not producing very much, and now your body produce it, you come up to here and you are high. And I can do a whole bunch of that because that's a motivation, right? They're like, hey, I came in here suicidal thinking I was going to die because I'm a worthless junkie is what they'll tell me, right? And they come out and they're like, woohoo. Also, singing allows you to bypass things you can't necessarily say. So we, if we do a songwriting exercise, we can dig into issues and concerns, problems that we can then take out to the rest of the therapeutic team, you know? And so there are many, many ways. So I would say, so singing is really good. And again, it does not matter. You know, I have a very, I have an average voice. I, I do fine in a choir. I can, you know, sing a, a song that's not too difficult. You know, I, I'm not, you know, Aretha Franklin or Whitney Houston, or I, you know, I don't have a magical voice. Who cares? Who cares? You know? I realized once I knew a woman who really did sound when she sang, she really did sound like a dying goat. And she, she, she sang in the synagogue all the time. And I was so judgmental and mean until I learned about this. This was, you know, before I was doing this research or at the start of when I was doing this research. And when I learned this, I thought you to myself, you shut your mouth because look at the joy sure. she has, you know, yeah. Absolutely. And then the other thing is, there's really something to be said for self affirmations, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me from Saturday Night Live. If you tell yourself, if your self talk is really negative, you're going to feel bad. I was telling a friend of mine once, I was telling him, I was like, wow, you know, all the bad things that I was saying about myself to myself. And he looked at me and really strongly said, don't talk about my friend like that. And I was like, oh my gosh. But if you think about it, I mean, I love that. But if you think about it, I would never say about or to someone the kind of horrible things I say to and about myself. Mm -hmm. Even someone I really didn't like, I would never use that kind of, well, if that's all you repeat back to yourself all day long, yeah. Right. You're going to, you're going to have, you know, a negative interest. So, you know, while it's silly, I halt that, so that negative self-talk now. Right. And uh, I applied, it's funny, I applied for a, a, a research grant and I didn't get the, I didn't get it in the first round. And I talked to a friend of mine, a colleague who had gotten this grant twice. And I said, what do you think I did wrong? And uh, we talked about it and he said, well, rewrite the, I wasn't going to reapply. He said, rewrite the essay and reapply. And I rewrote the essay and I sent it off to him. And he was like, wow, 
I don't know if I'll get the grant or not. But he was like, what happened? And I said, oh, I wrote about myself like a, I was an unqualified white man applying for a job that, you know, I don't have any of the qualifications for. And he was like, but that's something to learn, right? That's not something we're sought to be self-deprecating and demure. And I left a job because they're like, you're not really like sweet and nice and demure. And I was like, oh, you picked the wrong person because then that wouldn't be me, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm like, no, I have to be, you know, and and I was like, it, it, the, the guy literally said to me, he was like, he was like, well, I want you to be more like my mom. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a no. Like he didn't get, he didn't get that that was, you know, inappropriate. Right. <laughs> but, and his mom is lovely. I, I really, his mom is genuinely like a lovely person, you know? And I was like, yeah, that's, you know we have to be assertive. And, and if you, and if you, whoever you is, are, who's judging me, want to label that as aggressive. Okay. Right. You wouldn't, if I was a man, in fact, this, this, this employer, he, he had said to me, he was like, well, I, I said, this behavior, you would not, you would not denigrate in a man. You would not reprimand in a man. He was like, yeah, but you're, you're a woman. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Right. So, so it's not, I share that because it's just not something that is, you know, taught to us we have Mm. to learn this and it's like no like I'm actually really a badass you know I really am people like me when we started with my childhood people like me die Mm. we are overdoses we are suicides you know we end up being a large number of women with you know be end up being sex trafficked you know abused like for I really understand that for me to be sober 25 years, to be 50 years old, this is gravy. And so that's what I just want to give back, right? Mm-hmm. What can I do? Like, I learn these things to make my life better, right? But I can share them because there's a ton of people who suffer from the same things that I do. And I want you to know, whoever you are, I want you to know that there's hope. And if someone who ha- comes from what I come from, can recover from addiction, recover from trauma, have a very vibrant research agenda, travel the world teaching, working with amazing people, learning from all sorts of different people and trying to help ease suffering in whatever way that I can. Coming from where I started, you can too. There is hope. It doesn't have to look the same. Like we're not all going to the same destination. But, you know, and, and maybe it's just that you aren't, you know, abusive to your kids. That might be the thing. Mm-hmm. I saw a woman, I saw a woman who was, you know, sober, but struggling and she had just had her children return to her from, you know, Department of Children and Family Services. And she was at this, at the county fair screaming at them, like in the middle of the thing. Like she had lost her mind. And I was like, boop, boop, boop. And I called up her mentor and I was like, we have a situation here at the county fair. And she was like, is that her in the background? I mean, she could hear her screaming on the phone. And I was like, she, I was like, yep, right? We help each other, mm. right? That woman actually is doing a lot, a lot better mm. with her kids, right? That was many, that's to eight years ago, right? She's doing a lot better with her kids and she's sober right? Over time, we can improve. So you don't have to follow my path, right? To be a success, but everything that we can do to not break other people down, to be a resource and a connection, that is really, you know, what I'm trying to do. That's what our, our gift is. Yeah. And I love that. And it is about that level of understanding because most people don't want to be screaming at their kids. You know, they don't actually want to do that but we look at people and we're like well that's just a bad person you know it's like no this person's struggling there's so much she had no skills Mm. I love that you say that because she's not a bad person at all she just had no skills and I don't have kids but I've seen a few of them you know and they are frustrating Mm. right and if you have no skills and then your kid is you know amped up on you know and they've had too much sugar and it's so much excitement and then I don't know what the argument but maybe maybe you can't afford to do another two hours of rides because they're 
bloody expensive, you know, or maybe you're like, no, you've already had two ice creams and a corn dog. You're not also having another sugary, whatever. Maybe you've had to put a boundary and the kid loses their mind. I was in, I was in Tasmania at the Cadbury chocolate factory. It's a Cadbury. Yes. Anyway, we're at the chocolate factory and all of a sudden where I was in the store and all of a sudden I hear this screaming, child screaming. And I see my friend and kids, my godson's like two or three, something like that at this point. And she has one hand and one foot and she's carrying him out. I see this little <laughs> child going across the you know open door of the store and I'm at the checkout. And I said, I said to the, the cashier, I was like, oh, I think we should hurry because that's mine. He just lost his mind. I mean, two-year-olds do that, right? He just three, whatever he was, lost his mind in the chocolate factory. And she couldn't get him to walk. She could he was you know flailing around. So she had him like this out in front of her. And just I don't know that I that was that a good solution? Yeah, I I, I don't know what the better one was, you <laughs> know. So they're frustrating. So mm. you add that to addiction, you add that to tra untreated trauma, you add that to and people just don't know what to do. I have met very few. I don't know that I've ever met a truly bad. I, I think there are some who exist. Even my dad. I, I think back about my dad. I thought he was a bad person for a while. But I think back about my dad and it's how broken he was. And some of the things that he did, you know, and I was just like trying to. He called me once when I was in college. And I was so just disgusted with him that I put him on to all my friends in the dorm. This is back when, you know, it was a long distance call. It was expensive, right? And I put him on to all my friends in the dorm until he couldn't afford the call anymore, which at the time was appropriate. Like, you know, yeah. but now that I'm sober and old and all the things, you know, he died at 52. I'm going to be 51 this year. So I have a different perspective on him. You know, mm. that's a man who is trying and using what skill he has it doesn't excuse what he did it doesn't you know make it any better what but i i don't think most people are bad it's like addiction so people love to hate addicts you know people who have substance abuse problems in particular or gambling or sex addiction you know too because when we're using we hurt people but it's not because we want to hurt you it's just because you get in the way. I, when I'm using, I have to use. And so if you insert yourself between me and my using, you're going to get hurt. It's not the same as if someone has cancer, right? Because the, what, the deterioration that happens is internal. My deterioration is expressed in relationship, unfortunately. So for example, if you invite me, if I'm using, right, and you invite me to your wedding and you say, don't come drunk, that's not really fair because I can't not drink. So I'm going to show up or not, or like I've never, I, when I was drinking, I never got to New Year's Eve. I'm like, because I was already passed out by the time y'all start, even started to go out at 9 30, 10 o'clock. I'm just, literally on the floor. Right? So I'm going to make a fool of myself or not, not because I don't love you, but because that's what happens. Mm. That's what happens. So I had a, a, a cousin, I have a cousin, and she was getting married. She's older, right? And she was getting married and she wanted her daughter, who had a heroin problem, to come to her wedding. And She'd done a lot of work herself. And so she understood that the daughter was going to be high. Now, the daughter, to her credit, really wanted to be at mom's wedding. And so she pulled back and used less because I have to have something just to even function, mm. right? So she used less. But during the wedding, she went on the nod and leaned forward, right? She's falling asleep, essentially. She leaned forward and one of her breasts fell out of her dress. Her uncle, was sitting next to her and he looked down and he pushed her back in her chair and popped her boob back in her dress and the wedding continued. She died shortly after that. The daughter died and her mother is so grateful that she got to be at the wedding 
was the daughter, the daughter wasn't trying to make a scene or whatever. She was doing the best she could, right? She's doing the best she could. And that unfortunately was a little embarrassing and everybody went on. If we can have that kind of understanding and compassion, we'll do better. That doesn't mean that we don't draw boundaries, right? Mm. Like, you know, if you're, if you're drinking, you are not putting kids in a car. Yeah. You shouldn't be driving, right? And you're not putting your kids in your car and going to wherever. Like we have, there, there are boundaries. I'm not saying that all bets are off, but we can have boundaries and also have compassion. Yeah. And that I think is our work as a community is to understand, okay, right? Daughter's not hurting anyone but herself, right? Mm-hmm. And doing the best she can versus, you know, showing up intoxicated at work and putting other people, you know, at risk, you know, so we can have compassion and still say, okay, this behavior is not, is not good. I had just someone call me and and say recently and say, you know, I have an employee that clearly has a substance abuse problem. And I, and I said, give them one chance, give them, give them a chance and say, we want you to go to rehab. This is what it looks like. This is the time off we can give you. This is what support we can give you, you know, blah, 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 blah. Give them a chance but you don't get to be loaded at work. You don't get to be loaded because that doesn't, that doesn't work for anyone. I was like, and then if they, you know, if they relapse after that, you know, you can make a determination. Was it a little slip? Was it, you know, does this seem to be a pattern? Are they taking advantage? And, you know, you can say, I've given you a chance and, you know, in good conscience, I've given you a chance. So there's good boundaries, you know, that we can have, but we don't have to exacerbate someone's suffering. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And it is, it's just about understanding because we're all, we're all dealing with our own stuff. I mean, I don't believe there's anybody that really doesn't have some kind of level of trauma that they're dealing with. And it really is just about that understanding that most people are acting out of that. Well, almost all of the population will have gone through some sort of traumatic or adverse experience in their life. The difference is, does it rise to the level of diagnosable so that they're having symptoms, you know, but in terms of, we all have challenges, we go through ups and downs in life, right? And and there are things that are, that are horrible to experience, right? A, a, A friend of mine put her dog down on Monday, you know, that she'd had for a long time and then the dog had cancer and it's all... That is, now, is she going to develop diagnosable trauma? Probably not. She has really good support, really good, you know, experience. But is she currently devastated? And might she be sharp in a conversation or unintentionally unkind because she's hurting, right? Hurt people hurt people, you know? Might, absolutely, Mm. right? And, And, but if you know that, Right. And she said something that's a little too what you'd be like, oh, okay, well, because it's not personal. See, we take things too personally when most of what there are occasions when it is personal, but most of the time that's not true. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, this old saying, if you understood how little people were thinking about you, you wouldn't worry so much what people are thinking about you. Right. You know, it's like, oh my God, they're all thinking I did this or that or blah, 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 blah. And it's like, mm, actually, I think they're thinking about themselves. Yeah. That's my yeah. experience, right? Yeah. Because when I'm, when I'm lost in thought and not paying attention, it's almost never a daydream or conversation about you. It's yeah. always, oh, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Did I, you know whatever, like, you know, did I leave the, did I leave the lights on? Did I, you know, close the, close the door to the dryer? Like, you know, it's stuff like that. I'm not thinking about you. I'm not judging. And if I do judge you, it's usually pretty quick. It's like, oh, he's acting a fool. And then I'm off to something about me again. I am not going to stay on you because I'm too self-absorbed the entire rate, human race. I mean, we're all too self-absorbed. Yeah, absolutely. And You've spoken about your passion for writing. Can you tell us what you want us to know about your book? Yeah. So, you know, I'll talk about the ones that are not mental health really. You can look me up on, I mean, my books are for sale on Amazon, but I write, I'll share this because it's about passion 
right? So I write nonfiction books because I'm a, I'm a PhD and, and I work at the intersection of addiction and trauma and that's what we do, right? We write books and papers and that sort of thing. I write for psychology today. I have a, you know, blog up there. I had, you know, I don't know, 1.3 million, 4 million, something like that. You know, people have read it. I, I write a lot in, in, in the mental health space, but also under my Hebrew name, Ahuva, A-H-U-V-A, which means beloved, right? I wanted my Hebrew, I changed my Hebrew name. I, so I wanted it to be beloved. And I wrote, write poetry and fiction. So I have an award-winning poetry book called Meeting God at Midnight. And it's about this coming to terms with trauma and working through that. So it has very dark pieces about my childhood, but it also has these really, you know, bright and I think beautiful pieces about connection. And then I'm super excited that my debut novel is coming out later in the year, probably September, maybe August, maybe October, I don't know. But it's called The Path to God's Promise, and it is about climate change and what happens when a contemporary Jewish woman is asked to be a prophet and warn the world about climate change. And she's like, dude, God, like, we don't do that, <laughs> which is not something Jewish people do. Like that, that time of, pro we don't do that prophecy thing anymore. But what, so it's about that. It's, it's not only about climate change, but it's also about how does one come to terms with their own spirituality and their spiritual connection? And how do they choose to share that or keep it private? Ending Addiction for Good was my original book. It's out of print, but you can buy it, you know, as a, as a, as a used book. There's, you know, the contemporary pieces, but it's really, you know, like I said earlier, I love it if people buy my books, right? I love it if they enjoy my books, but it's writing as a passion. And I want to encourage you that whatever your passion is, right, you can have that. My next book is A Year of Living Bravely. And I'm working on the research of that and going around the world and getting to meet amazing people who are doing wonderful things and interview them. What does it mean to be brave? What does it mean to be courageous? You know, and my next stop will be miss people who are working on missing and murdered indigenous women. And why aren't we trying to find these, yeah. these, these people and, and, and why are, you know, Native Americans so heavily, you know, sex trafficked and, and murdered. And we don't, in some places, we don't even track it because of jurisdictional and other issues. Like, I want to, I want to put a spotlight on that and say, hey, hey, this is not acceptable. And look at what these people are doing, you know? Yeah. And so I get to do that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so if people want to connect with you, where can they find you? I'm on all the socials and I have a website. It's just constancesharf.com. Oh, Constance, this has been such an incredible conversation. I've just loved it because, I mean, your story is just incredible. But You've just shared so many little light bulb moments for me today, things that I haven't quite heard in the same way before. And it's just been so enlightening. And I just, I'm just so grateful for your beautiful light. It's just incredible that you, you're just such a giving and beautiful person. And I'm just very emotional having heard everything that you've been through and, um, and where you are today. And so I just thank you so much for connecting with us and sharing so much with us. Uh, well, thank you for having me. And, you know, that I, I feel for that child that I was, mm. but I'm not there anymore. Yeah. You know, and if she hadn't been so hurt, I would not have had the experience. And I listen, if I could have made another choice, I would have said, come on, daddy, let's, we can do better than this. Yeah. But it really is a, a, a lemons into lemonade moment. Like I, because of that experience, I have so much to give and so much to offer in terms of the research and work that I do. Mm -hmm. And I choose, and this is a self-narrative, I choose to be grateful for that rather than resentful of what happened. Yeah. And, and so that, I, I just want to, isn't it? Yeah, That's I just want to say recovery is 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 available and and you know seek out resources whether it's you know with me or someone else like there are resources available. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. 
check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.